Hello and welcome to COVIDcast, a Lowy Institute podcast for anyone interested in understanding the effect of coronavirus on the world and international life. My name is Ben Bland and I'm the director of the Southeast Asia program at the Lowy Institute in Sydney, Australia. As this crisis unfolds, we're sitting down with experts from a range of fields to discuss the implications of coronavirus for the world. In this episode, I'll be speaking with Hatib Basri about Indonesia's struggle with COVID-19 and its economic implications. Hatib Basri, or Dede as he's known, uh, is a highly respected former finance minister and former head of Indonesia's investment coordinating board. He's currently a lecturer in economics at the University of Indonesia, where he also studied, in addition to obtaining a PhD at the Australian National University in Canberra. And I was lucky enough to get to know Dede when I lived in Jakarta, and he was extremely helpful in explaining the Indonesian economy and the many weird and wonderful ways in which it works to me during my time living in the Indonesian capital. So thank you so much, Dede, for joining me today. Pleasure, man. Thanks for having me. It's, it's great to have you here. And I, I want to start with a bit of a personal question, uh, Dede. So maybe you can explain to me, what was it uh, back in the day that drew you in to the world of, of public policy and, and economics? I began to get involved on the public policy was perhaps back in 2004. Uh, it was by coincidence, actually. I was asked by President Yudhoyono to help him during the transition period. Uh, actually, uh, I didn't know President Yudhoyono personally, but I regularly write uh, a column, an economic analysis in the Compass, the leading Indonesian newspaper. And I was a director of LPM, the Institute for Economic and Social Research at that time. And this institute has a tradition to uh, sort of like a become a think tank for the policy making. So Sri Mulyani was a former director, Darmina Sution, the former accounting minister, former director, even Wijoyo, the you know, late Professor Wijoyo, architect of Indonesian economy, was a director of this institute. So that is why how uh, I get involved on the policy and I was helping Sri Mulyani from 2006 to 2010 uh, as uh, her uh, special advisor. Yeah, and then I uh, took a job as the vice chairman of this National Economic Committee, uh, sort of like Council of Economic Advisors in the U.S., then Chairman of BKP, uh, the Investment Board, then Finance Minister. And I think when I first met you, you were still an independent economist. You were advising the government in the the second term of President Udiono, SBY as he's known. And then uh, I was lucky enough, uh, already knowing you, that you were, you were promoted to, to head the investment board and then to be finance minister during quite a tricky time for Indonesia during the, the taper tantrum, as it was known, a period of instability in financial markets that affected Indonesia quite badly. I mean, how did your time as finance minister compared to your expectations uh, from outside government as an economist and an advisor? How different was it when you were in the room being the one having to make the tough decisions? Very good question, Ben, because as an academic, you are living in the first best world. You know, but in as a policymaker, like a finance minister, uh, we are not living in the first best world. We are living maybe in the second best world and run by the best bureaucracy. And that's the reality. And I cannot complain with that. So I have to work uh, within the constraint. Yeah. And one thing that uh, came up, you know, I always, I remember uh, was very difficult, was very tough to make a decision to 
if you recall, to cut the fuel subsidy at that time to adjust the fuel price, uh, from the techno uh, technocratic perspective, was relatively clear, but not easy politically because you had to do it just nine months before the election. So that kind of things, you know, make me uh, humble by the reality. And what what would you say surprised you most um, from your time in government? Uh, I thought that you know we can implement all the knowledge, understanding what we learn from at the university from textbooks so easily. But in fact, in reality, is we have to work within constraint. So my description for this is I become humble with the political reality that we have to work within constraint. We have to. Uh, incorporate the institutional constraint, political constraint. So my my description is maybe if your institution still in the Jurassic Park, don't come up with a policy like a Star Wars. It's not going to work. So in the short term, what we need is we probably need to do best fit while you continue to do a reform. Then you are talking about best practice on the medium and the long term. If the taper tantrum was was a test for Indonesia, I think it's it's fair to say that the COVID nineteen um, challenge is really a much much more difficult crisis. Obviously, not just for Indonesia, all around the world, but particularly uh, for a large developing country like Indonesia. And um, how do you think uh, the country is faring so far amid this this very difficult challenge, which I think has shone a spotlight on all our political systems, you know, revealing the weak points for, for every nation. As you said, this is not an easy time for all of us. Yeah, I would say that if I can make comparative study, a country like Indonesia is probably not the best in handling both uh, pandemic and also the economic issue. But we are not also the worst if you compare to many countries. So, if you look at the economy, we had a contraction. On the second quarter, minus 5.3, and then if you look at the third quarter, it's improved a little bit. The contraction is relatively less. So somehow we have been able to turn around. But if you look at you know the way the government handle the pandemic, we're still struggling to address this issue. So it's probably I have to say that compared to some others, we are not too bad, but we are not doing very well compared to country like South Korea or Vietnam, for example. And President Joko Widodo, Jokowi as he's known, has been criticised quite a lot by by epidemiologists and scientists for not doing enough to tackle the spread of COVID-19. Indonesia has one of the lowest testing rates in the world currently. And the president has also said repeatedly that he's been reluctant to push for the sort of lockdown measures that we see being reimposed in, in Europe right now because he thinks it would cause too much damage to the Indonesian economy. In Indonesia, more than half of people are in for, employed in the informal sector. They can't work from home in the way that you or I can. And so the president has said it's not really appropriate in Indonesia. He also doesn't think people have the discipline to follow the rules. So he's almost been saying it's, it's the people's fault as much as, as the government's fault. I mean, do you think that's that's right, that, that lockdowns, uh, the sort of intense social restrictions and perhaps the social benefits that need to come with them that we see in somewhere like Australia or in Europe, that that's just not appropriate uh, for a country like Indonesia? I think we have to look at this issue more in a comprehensive way, yeah. Because we have to incorporate the political issue, institutional constraint, economic issue. Unlike in other countries like Australia, for example, you do have this 
a social security, good social security system, like Australian call it doll, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. So you got the unemployment benefit. In the case of Indonesia, only the rich people could afford to be unemployed because we don't have the unemployment benefit. If you are poor, then you have to work because you don't have any insurance for that. And for that reason, it's not easy for the government to implement lockdown because people could stay at home only if they have enough savings, unless the government could provide uh, the cash transfer. If the government want to introduce the effective lockdown, they should be accompanied by a good cash transfer program. Otherwise, the poor people, they cannot afford to stay at home. This lockdown is biased toward upper and middle class if the government fail to provide lockdown. So that is why, from that perspective, I can understand it's not always easy. But I do understand, Ben, there is a, a implication of it. So this making the uh, progress in handling the pandemic is become maybe longer in a country like Australia or New Zealand or Singapore, yeah, because we need to introduce the uh, health protocol, but at the same time, you cannot force people to stay at home unless you provide the social protection. But one thing that I have to say that maybe the government could do better if the disbursement of the government spending could be faster. If you look at the data from the uh, government absorption, even until today, the economic recovery program, the absorption is only about less than 50%. Yeah, because the ability to absorb. And if you look at the way that we design the health program, yeah, some ministers, because they are relatively new, they just disappointed about a year ago. They are not accustomed of designing budget, designing program, uh, handling this pandemic. Probably it's suboptimal than it's supposed to be. And I think that speaks to the issue you're referring to earlier of the, the bureaucracy and the challenges there, that even where Indonesia does have these programs to distribute cash to people who need it, both identifying the people and then getting the money to them is just difficult. Policy transmission in such a big, diverse country with so many competing levels of government is just, just hard, um, as you found out yourself in, in office. But I guess I, I want to ask about the impact of that. We know that Indonesia has just gone into its first recession in more than 20 years, the first since the Asian financial crisis, which really devastated the Indonesian economy. We know that several million of the Indonesians who do have formal jobs have lost those jobs. Many more millions of Indonesians in the informal sector have been pushed back in, into poverty. How deep do you think the impact of this recession is going to be and who is going to be hardest hit? I completely agree with your description. Uh, this is worrying in the sense this is the first time after 20 years that we are back to recession. But one thing that seems to me there is a positive signal on this, if you look at the contraction in the third quarter, it's relatively less compared to the at the second quarter. So second quarter, we experienced minus 5.3, but in the third quarter, we experienced growth minus 3.5. So you could see there is a possibility of the recovery path, like uh, uh, shape or the Nike logo. You know, we hit the worst on the second quarter and then gradually uh, improve. But it depends so much on the how the government could address the pandemic. Why I said this? Let me put this way: If the pandemic is still there, then the government need to impose the health protocol. So there is a limitation of the activities, maybe like restaurant fifty percent airlines about 70 percent 
and will be very difficult for the companies to achieve the economies of scale. So if the economies of scale is not there, and there is a risk for the companies to become like a zombie companies, and they don't want to invest. So in the short term, the recovery will depend so much about the ability to boost the consumption. It is very interesting to look at the pattern of consumption. The one who spend the money, the middle and lower income group, because they don't have savings. If they get money, a cash transfer from the government, they will spend it. But the middle and upper income group, which is the big chunk of the private consumption, they are reluctant to spend because they are worried about this issue of the pandemic. So it seems to me that the government somehow need to address the issue of the pandemic before they can give assurance or make the middle and upper income group uh, more comfortable. Once the demand is there, then you know you can expand your investment because the re- uh, nowadays is there is no point to expand your investment if the demand is not there, and that's explained by the lower of the loan to deposit ratio. No one would like to borrow money from banks because the demand is not there. I think that speaks to one of the key challenges for all countries, that there's a lot of talk about trade-offs in managing COVID-19 between health and the economy, but you can't really just lean one way on everything. These are interconnected issues, and without some sort of sustained effort to tackle the pandemic, you seem to be suggesting it's not going to be possible for the Indonesian economy just to bounce back while COVID-19 is still spreading relatively easily in Indonesia. Completely agree. That is why, you know, in my view, uh, on the one hand, the government should address this uh, pandemic, for example, by introducing this, increasing the testing, ability to do testing, tracing, and isolation. But at the same time, the government needs to provide, to continue to provide the social protection, uh, while uh, the private investment probably uh, will not increase uh, this year and also next year. So after all, under this kind of situation, we are all Keynesian now. We depend so much on the fiscal stimulus. Yeah. So the combination of both of it, I think, uh, somehow will help us to navigate this very difficult situation. We know that the president's big push in the last uh, few weeks and months has been the so-called omnibus law or, or the job creation uh, law, this really sweeping piece of legislation over a thousand pages long which is going to change dozens of individual laws. And it's really designed overall to make it easier to do business in Indonesia, to make it easier for foreign companies to hire and fire, to attract uh, foreign investment, foreign workers into Indonesia, and try and provide some new sources of growth. But the way in which the bill was, was brought in, I think it was hastily rushed through the parliament, led to quite sustained street protests all across Indonesia from a combination of workers, groups, students, environmentalists, and others. Do you think the the omnibus law was the right measure at the right time? Uh, I would say in two perspectives. Let me talk in terms of substance first and then uh, about the process. Yeah. From the substance perspective, you probably recall when I was a chairman of the investment board, Ben, I told my colleague in the cabinet that one of the reasons of why many Indonesians become religious is because they have to deal with the government. Yeah, if you want to invest in Indonesia, you apply for something and you will never know. There's nothing you can do except only pray to God until one day the government kind enough to tell you that your investment application has been approved. So this situation has been like this for ages. Yeah, in my view, there are three really big issues on the investment. The first one is the consistency between the central and local government. If you come to the investment board, we give you 
the license permit relatively easy, less than three days. But it doesn't mean that you could do an investment in Asia because you have to deal with the local government. And then the local government can do their own thing, no consistency, make you headache. So what I did at that time, I tried to find a champion so investor could come to that region easily. Yeah. Otherwise, but I cannot do to the whole entire Indonesia. So that's the first one. The second one is no consistencies within the central government because that could be the case that regulation from the MOF, the Ministry of Finance, is contradict with the Ministry of Industry or Ministry of Trade. So somehow we need to streamline this. And the third one is about the labor law. Indonesia was known as a country with the highest severance payment in the world. Yeah. So because the severance payment, this act like a, acted like a hiring tax. No one would like to absorb worker because it was too expensive if you do the downsizing. Yeah. As a result, you know, you could see that the investment shift from the labor intensive into natural resources or capital intensive increase the inequality. So from that kind of perspective, I would say that this omnibus law is perhaps one of the solution yeah, to handle this issue. And if you look at from the local perspective, we do have a structure of some companies in the top, many companies in the bottom of the pyramid, but not many companies in the middle. We call it the hollow middle. Because for the big companies, you could afford to do investment yeah, because you can wait for about one or two years before you get an approval for the investment, or you can uh, afford to pay the cost doing business. But for the middle uh, companies, too expensive for you. Or otherwise, you choose to become an informal. You don't register, right? So this policy will help. But I think there is some issue related to, to this policy about the process. Yeah, especially during the pandemic. Uh, this omnibus law involves about, if I'm not mistaken, 79 laws altogether. Yeah, you probably need a very intensive consultation related to that discussion but what happened was the process was relatively short making the resistance protests from various but i would say that the, the one who resists this omnibus law is the insider of the labor market the trade union because they are already protected but this happened at the expense of the outsider of the labor market so i think we have to look at this omnibus law from those two perspectives and panning out a bit more broadly to Indonesia's long-term economic trajectory, I mean, I get a sense that Jokowi himself, while he's in a bit of a hurry on the omnibus law, he's by and large an incrementalist leader in, in a similar way uh, to which SBY was. I guess I have a worry that in the end, Indonesia's not reforming its economy fast enough for the three million odd young people joining the workforce every year, a world that's getting more challenging, more competitive. I mean, do you have a similar fear that Indonesia is just not doing enough quickly enough in the long-term trajectory to satisfy these great ambitions for Indonesia to be a fully developed country by 2045 with social justice, the sort of social welfare system that, that Australia and other developed countries enjoy? Do you think Indonesia can get there or is it really on the wrong track? Well, if you're talking about the tra trajectory, we are on the right track, but the issue is about the speed, yeah, especially after the pandemic. Yeah, because in my view, there are three things that the government needs to improve. The first one, Jokowi is doing relatively well on the issue of this hard infrastructure. And this is very important for the basic. But the second one, if you want to avoid the middle income trap, one thing that you need to do is to do a big significant improvement of a big leap 
forward on the issue of this human capital. And I think this will take some time. One generation is not always easy. One way to make it a shortcut is if you attract, you invite the foreign investor and ask them to do the technology transfer, spillover, but that's not always easy. And the third one, and this is very important, if we, if we learn from the history, is always about the institutional building. Yeah, to address. Otherwise, we are going to repeat the same mistake like what Suharto did in the past. We focus too much on the issue of economic development and we forgot about this issue of this, you know, building the institution. And one thing that I'm worried about is about the weakening of the role of the anti-corruption committee. Because in my view, this is very important. So if we can sort of like address those two issues, there is a hope, Ben, that we can address the issue of the middle income trap. But to be honest with you, this is, is easier to be said than done. Yeah, we hope that Indonesia can speed things up, but it is really a really difficult time now. And I almost feel for Indonesia and for many other countries, it's just about getting through this crisis for now. And in a way, those longer term questions will probably have to wait. I did want to ask you a bit about this international relations and the impact on, on Indonesia. Uh, Joe Biden's obviously just been confirmed as, as the victor of, of the U.S. election after uh, some days of, of doubt and contestation. I mean, do you think uh, a Biden presidency presages a new, more benevolent time for Asia and for Indonesia? Do you think that this could be a, a chance to reset U.S.-China relations potentially in a way uh, that creates a better environment for Indonesia, which is obviously has deep partnerships with both countries. You know, one of many Southeast Asian countries to fear being stuck in the middle of these two great elephants as they fight it out. The answer is yes and no, in the sense that perhaps the geopolitic, global geopolitic will be less erratic compared to Trump's era, because during the Trump era, it was very erratic, you know. But I don't think there will be a significant change of the U.S. policy towards China because the issue of China and the U.S. is beyond the issue of trade. This is conflict between the established power and the rising power, like a Tuxedidas trap. So in, in, in my view, maybe in terms of the issue of China, both Republican and Democrat will be bipartisan. So I think the tension between the U.S. and China will continue. And this will have an impact on the region because somehow the U.S. need to maintain the presence in the region as well. At the same time, you could see that China is also quite you know, aggressive in terms of this expansion through the economic activities. Uh, for the country, for the region like ASEAN, it's not always easy when, because you cannot deal with China bilaterally. Yeah, so if we have to deal with China, should be ASEAN plus China, ASEAN plus US, plus Japan, etc. And if you're talking about the centrality of ASEAN, like it or not, Indonesia should play a role. But unfortunately, the last uh, six years, Indonesia do not play a very significant role in terms of this uh, leadership in the ASEAN, maybe because we are too busy with this kind of situation. But I think this is very important to sort of like maintain the balance between China on the one hand, US on the other hand, and also ASEAN as a hub. And do you think that the pandemic has boosted China's position in, in Asia and with respect to Indonesia? Because you know, President Jokowi is really betting on a vaccine. Uh, he's, he's cooperating with China on, on late stage trials for a Chinese vaccine in Indonesia. Chinese investment is still flowing through more than other kinds of investment. 
Uh, and it seems that, you know, there's a risk that Indonesia maybe becomes more reliant on China de facto because of the pandemic and the impact. Um, do you think that a worry that you would share? This already happening even before the pandemic, because 60% of our export is energy and commodity related. And the biggest buyer, the biggest offtaker of this energy and commodity uh, is China, you know, besides China and India. So that is why Indonesian economy in terms of this export depends so much on the, you know, not only Indonesia, Southeast Asian economy and also East Asian economy depends so much on China. So that is why it is very important to maintain the balance between China, between U.S. That is why the presence of the U.S., not in terms of the physical presence, but in terms of this investment, the trade is also very important to balance the situation similar to the presence of the Japanese. Yeah, otherwise, uh, the Southeast Asian economy will depend so much on China. Like if you look at what happened with the AIIB, the, uh, you know, the infrastructure fund at that time, uh, there was no way that ASEAN country would refuse China, but we are worry about the issue of governance. So one way to handle this issue at that time to join the AIIB and was expecting the U.S. will also join the AIIB to ensure that the governance is there. But if the U.S. is absent of this kind of situation, then perhaps that will not make the situations become better. Uh, it's important, I guess, to try and, and shape China's behavior, and that requires cooperation uh, among nations, which has been particularly difficult in the Trump era, I think it's fair to say. Just lastly, before we wind up, I want to come back to something I remember you telling me in one of our, our many coffee and lunch meetings in Jakarta, which is that Indonesia always disappoints. It disappoints the optimists, but it disappoints the pessimists too. Uh, why do people outside Indonesia keep getting the country wrong? Why are our expectations for Indonesia always out of kilter with reality? Well, first, I have to clarify, I took this quote from my friend Jim Castle, actually. He was the one who sort of like to make the quote. But I think this is because the expectation sometimes is too high for Indonesia without really understanding or addressing the issue of the institutional constraint, the political constraint. In the short period of time, it is very difficult to change the institution or uh, political issue. You know, a couple of years ago, I said that when there was a huge expectation about the new president, I said that after two years, every president will become a normal president because they have to deal with the political reality. And a similar like situation in Indonesia, there's a lot of potentials, but in reality, you have to work within constraint. You cannot introduce the bold reform because the, the political setup, let me put this way, Indonesia is a country with the presidential presidential system, but multi-political parties. As a result, there is no single majority. So if you want to uh, shape the cabinet, form the cabinet, somehow you need to have this rainbow coalition. Yeah, Within the rainbow coalition, you cannot do both reform because you have to accommodate various political uh, interests on that. So one cannot really expect that the technocratic cabinet, like in the Suharto era, could happen under this democratic situation. So somehow the adjustment will take some time. We have to accommodate, you know, various interests, etc. And making the progress is relatively slow compared to our expectation. But at the same time, if you look at make a comparison like 98, I was a student at the ANU at the time. I recall that everyone was talking that there was no hope on Indonesia because 
minus 13 on the economic crisis. If we conducted presidential election, there will be a bloodshed. But if you recall, 10 years after 98, 2008, Indonesia was one of the member of the G20. So we're making progress, not as pessimistic as what we you know, predicted, but you know, still we cannot achieve, we cannot realize our potential because this institutional setup and political situation. Well, I think the lesson there is that so long as we start from a position that's realistic, it's much easier to be optimistic. Uh, and it's been really great listening to you share all your insights into how government really works and the challenges of getting things done. So thanks again, Dede, for joining me for today's discussion on Indonesia. Thank you, Ben. Thanks for having me. COVIDcast is a limited edition podcast from the Lowy Institute. Thank you to my colleague Jennifer Reinhardt for production assistance. Please keep an eye on our social media channels for details of the next episode of COVIDcast. And you can stay up to date with all the latest developments on coronavirus via the Lowy Institute's widely read digital magazine, The Interpreter. Thank you all for listening today and stay tuned for our next episode.